0: And in effect, what you are doing when you take out a loan is you are stealing from other people. And that's what we make clear in the book is that this is just theft in a convoluted way. And and you can't just say, oh, you know what, that that's okay because everyone else does it because that is not, that's still not right. It, wh- whatever is wrong is still wrong. And, uh, you know, they make it very difficult for you to figure out that you are actually stealing and I. And this is something I struggle with, honestly, because I have a mortgage, right, I, that I took out, but I've come to the conclusion, I, I've expanded the money supply. I've stolen a little bit from every holder of the dollar out there.
1: Welcome to the Bitcoin Basics podcast with your hosts, Faris and Gordon from CoinCompass.com, enabling you to safely buy and securely store your Bitcoins. All resources are in the show notes and description, including our disclaimer. Visit BitcoinBasicsPodcast.com to subscribe and discover other free content.
2: Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Bitcoin Basics Podcast. Uh, this is Ferris. I'm here with Gordon. It is Tuesday, the 12th of January 2021. And as proof of recording, the price of Bitcoin is 35205 And the block height is 665,760. And we just had a really wonderful conversation with Jimmy Song. Um, We talked about Bitcoin. We talked about Christianity. We talked about um, politics, basically bringing in conversations that I never had. Um, It was really interesting for me to see these other facets of Bitcoin that um, touches our daily lives. Uh, Gordon, how did you find that chat with Jimmy?
1: Oh, it was absolutely awesome. Um, and we, we did talk about Jimmy's book, Thank God for Bitcoin, but don't be turned off by that, whether you're an atheist, a Christian, agnostic, anything in between. Uh, we talked about all uh, the topics that Farris talked about and um, we, got, we got personal and we got to some, some, some practicalities and some realities. So but instead of us summarizing it, how about we just go to the interview?
2: So Jimmy Song, thank you very much for joining us. And um, I mentioned off camera that Gordon and I have been following your work since twenty sixteen. The only reason I mentioned that is, you know, we just wanted you to know that we knew you before you became cool and popular.
0: <laughs> well, thank you, thank you. Uh, it's it's been quite the journey since twenty sixteen, hasn't it? And uh, much like Bitcoin, I am I am um, ecstatic at what what's happening, um, you know, with the world and, uh, you know, despite all the craziness of the past year or so, we're, we're finally getting to the point where Bitcoin is really breaking through. So I'm very excited about that.
2: Yeah. And I think your new book, thank God for Bitcoin, which we'll get you to talk about is incredibly timely, not just Mm -hmm. from Bitcoin, but from, um, the human cycles that we're going through. So, um, if any of our listeners are familiar with the, um, uh the book the uh oh, it's to my tongue now. I've forgotten it I'll come
0: fourth turning yeah, or something
2: thank you, fourth turning, thank you Jimmy. Great minds think alike uh, one day I'll be one of them, hopefully um, <laughs> yeah, I think we're at the beginning of a new hundred year cycle, and I know a few years ago Bitcoin was essentially getting um some coverage along some you know uh orthodox Christian websites, probably the best way of describing them, that Bitcoin mm. is the new antichrist, or it's the <laughs> mark of the beast. I'm sure you've come across some of those, but um, it was mm. very interesting to hear your take on Bitcoin. And so tell me, why should we thank God for Bitcoin? <sighs>
0: Yeah, uh, so here's the book, uh thank God for Bitcoin. I'm holding it up in case you're listening to the podcast. Uh but yeah, the the reason why I uh you know, felt the need to write this book with seven co-authors was because um you know, it's very easy to dismiss Bitcoin just as sort of like a tool for evil people that want to only do drugs or child pornography or not pay taxes or something like that. And um and we wanted to present like a different case for Bitcoin, a moral case for Bitcoin, because in our opinion, uh, a moral case for Bitcoin will go a lot further than you know you'll you'll be rich and you know be you'll be able to buy a Lambo in a few years, that sort of thing. Like uh, instead of appealing to self-interest, uh, we wanted to appeal to something higher, and that, that's that's why we wrote the book. Um, as far as uh you know your your interesting observation that you know there were people saying oh this is going to be the one world currency the mark of the beast and so on uh we refute that directly in uh in the bitcoin chapter which is chapter 8 of the book where we we talk about you know bitcoin's various properties if you read that scripture, uh, the, the passage of revelation and so on. It's all about the, uh, you know, a system that gets halted because there's a central controller. And that's, that's the main property of Bitcoin is that it doesn't have a trusted third party. It doesn't have somebody in the middle that can censor your transactions that can, uh, steal from you through inflation that can, um, you know, confiscate things because they think you're doing something evil and so on. So, um, in a sense it's the exact opposite of that one world currency that's prophesied in revelation or whatever it's it's very much it's opposite it's the antidote and it, and we make that case in the book that you know if you if you really think hard about money um and what it actually is and what it what it's meant to be um you'll you'll come to the re- realization that bitcoin is just better money better at what it's supposed to do how it's supposed to do it and uh, from a moral perspective, just uh, much, more, uh, much more ethical than uh, fiat money, which is a cesspool of theft and nepotism and all these other things. So, Jimmy, I've got a million
1: questions. And before we get stuck in your book, we probably got some atheists rolling in the rise and they're like, oh, this religious you know, person <laughs> taking the high ground. we were we'll probably got Christians listening to this and they're like, that's blasphemy. You're talking about... Um, you know, mm-hmm. the money. It's meant to be the root of a legal, which, by the way, is misquoted. Um, mm-hmm. I'll get to that in a second, but our audience probably doesn't know who you are. They're normal mm. people who don't listen to 10 Bitcoin podcasts a day like us. <laughs> so um, who, who is Jimmy Song? And obviously answer that however you want.
0: Yeah, sure. Uh, so I, I am a programmer and I have been since I uh, came out of college in 98. So I, I've been working at various startups and uh, coding uh, for most of my life. So, um, uh, you know, I, I've been coding since I was like in third grade, something like that. So it's it's something that comes kind of naturally to me. Um, it's almost like a part of myself, I guess. Uh, but yeah, uh, 2011 is when I discovered Bitcoin, um, you know, uh, in a Slash dot article. So I guess it's been about 10 years now where I've been in the quote unquote Bitcoin space. Uh, I've written three books on Bitcoin, one for programmers specifically, programming Bitcoin. Um, I I wrote a second book with seven co-authors, The Little Bitcoin Book, which was uh, meant to be sort of like an easy intro to Bitcoin and why it's significant. And then uh, I wrote uh, the newest book is Thank God for Bitcoin, which I also wrote with seven other people um, talking about you know, why uh, Bitcoin is a more moral money and sort of giving the moral argument for it from a Christian perspective. So, um, you know, I've been a Christian all my life as well. So this dovetailed nicely. Um, I I didn't intend to write this book. Uh, It it just sort of came out of the entire uh, lockdown COVID stuff. Um, You know, I, I, had a few people that I knew from my Bitcoin journey that were Christian, and we got together over Zoom and started uh, studying a couple of books that uh, sort of uh, brought monetary policy and Christianity together. Um, um, and we we decided to study them, invited some other people, and that book club slash Bible study ended up becoming, uh, you know, really good and at the end we were unsatisfied with the two books that we studied the um, or at least the conclusions of the two books that we studied uh, honest money by Barry north and epic the ethics of money production by guido von halsman and at the end we were like okay we got to publish a book that brings bitcoin into this because these two books while really good they didn't take into account bitcoin at all because they were written either be- before bitcoin or uh, or when bitcoin was very early so they didn't really know about it. And we wanted to make that argument. And that's what we tried to do with this book.
1: Oh, awesome. Uh, I, I love Honest Money, except for the last chapter when they go, uh, we need to get back to the gold standard. So, you know, we need to lobby yeah. government, we need to make all these laws. And it's like, yeah. And that's, you know, w- without blowing out Trump, but that's the thing about Bitcoin is that you can just opt out. You can. You, you mm-hmm. don't need permission. So, um, for those perhaps unfamiliar, what is wrong with the current system? So, what's oh, wrong with the money?
0: Yeah, there, there's just so much wrong with it. But, uh, but you know, yeah, you, you ask people what money is, and they can. They'll usually tell you in terms of what they can do with it. Uh, you know, I get paid uh, when I work, and uh, they deposit a paycheck into my banking account, and you know, I can go use it to. Buy goods and services from various people, and so on. Um, they don't actually know what money is, um, and th- this is the first thing that you generally have to educate people on because most people don't know what money is. How you know who makes it? You know how how is it, and why is it this way? Um, so we actually spend uh, you know a couple of chapters uh, not only going through what money is like now, but through the history of money and what what it was meant to be. Um, and there, there's a there's a lot uh, about money that we can we can discuss, but just overall, money is uh, is a way is a saleable good. It's a tradable good. It, it's something that you can use to exchange for goods and services now or later, right? It's supposed to store value over time. It's a, it's a method of payment or medium of exchange. It's also a unit of account and so on. It, it's something that helps you to, um, uh, figure out where you can most add value. Um, and th- this is where, uh, you know, people tend to work is where they can make the most money. Um, uh, and that ha- in, in an ideal economy, that's where you're, uh, you can contribute your best talents, uh, for the good of civilization, because it, you know, that's going to be your best, um, You know, labor to payment ratio and so on. Um, So that's what money is supposed to be. Um, The unfortunate reality of today's monetary system, the fiat uh, central bank backed debt based system, is that it subverts what money is meant to be, it it, it makes it uh, a cesspool of theft and uh, rent seeking and all these other things that are just absolutely evil for an economy, for a civilization. Um, and by that, I mean, uh, you know, if you don't know what rent seeking is, it's uh, you know, picture sort of like a bureaucrat that sort of rubber stamp stuff. They're not really adding value to anything. They're not adding value to anyone, but they collect the paycheck, right? Like they're they're the uh, useless person <laughs> essentially that uh, continues to collect the paycheck. Uh, that that's a drain on the system and anyone can see that and it, it's not only in government but it's in all sorts of companies right you you, uh, you know you talk to any management consultant that's uh consulted for any fortune 500 company or anything and they'll tell you right like you can you could cut half the people and the company wouldn't suffer because a lot of the people in a company tend to be rent seekers. They they're not really doing anything. They they just sort of learned how to play the political game so that they don't lose their job, but they they continue to, um, you know, collect the paycheck and and stay at their job and so on. So. That is uh, that is what fiat money sort of uh, enables, and uh, and this is due to nepotism and and many other things, but largely it's because there's somebody that creates the money, um, and in the case of the modern system, it's central banks, and uh, because of the way the IMF has. Um, Sort of enforced certain things and uh, created low, uh, you know, lent out to you know distressed countries and so on. Pretty much every country and every major country in the world has a quote unquote independent central bank that's not answerable to govern uh, to to government, but they they print the money uh, whenever they want in the form of debt. Now that uh, that causes all sorts of incentives that we don't really learn about at school and if any if you know anything about it it's usually oh you know they're they're uh, trying to keep the economy afloat and uh, make sure that everyone's employed and so on uh, but you know you you actually study this thing and you realize that it, it is a giant drain on the entire economy um, and it it brings forward consumption and, and it's uh, all based on debt so you're you're essentially kicking the can down the road uh, in many ways and bringing consumption forward and uh you know being enslaved to the debt that you're incurring on yourself so um that's essentially the system and it it as a result of all of that we get all sorts of moral consequences uh which we you know go through in chapter 6 of our book right it makes people very high time preference or impatient or, uh, what you would call, um, maybe materialistic or, um, you know, short tempered or thinking only about today or having sort of that YOLO FOMO mentality. Um, and yeah, you know, there, there's a lot of different consequences to that, but a lot of the societal ills that we see today can really be traced back to the money supply and how, you know, the equation or the, um, You know, uh, the free market has been um, manipulated in many ways by the presence of a money printer. And uh, and that makes makes everything a lot worse. And uh, and our call in this book is if we return, if we go towards Bitcoin, if you opt out towards Bitcoin, what you're going to see is a lot of changes, um, and eventually it'll change all of civilization. Uh, once once we get to something like a Bitcoin standard, and the good news is that you can you can do it today, right? Like as an individual, instead of sort of needing a political action committee that uh, you know uh, gets enough votes to get back on the gold standard, like you were saying, um, and that that to me is. Is the key uh, to why Bitcoin uh, can be so effective in that regard.
1: If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe, like, and share so we can find others like yourself.
2: Those are some really excellent points in there, Jimmy. And um, yeah, I'm kind of taking notes in my head. Um, <laughs> But yeah, like we've, Gordon and I have done a couple um, public engagements where we speak to people about Bitcoin, and the majority of it is explaining the current system, explaining mm. why 1971 mm. was so important, how going off the gold standard. So an in understanding just simply supply and demand, people will then mm. appreciate Bitcoin. Um, a key phrase you mentioned there is nepotism and... Mm. Um, if anyone's not read the book, The Lords of Finance, it's really crucial to read um, because at the end of the day, these people making these decisions where you know, we are, you know, lack of a better term, printing so much money, especially in response to COVID, but it's been happening since 2008. And I remember when they, you know, Congress had to pass in the US an $880 billion bailout package. It didn't pass the first time. They said, if we don't do this, the entire financial system will collapse. And people, It like, well, it's a lot of money, it didn't pass the first time the second time they did it, they've been printing um, that amount, more than that amount every three months since. Mm -hmm. And people are just simply don't understand the impact this has because you are the government. You have to pay that back. And Mm -hmm. as you say, you're taking this from the future. So to me, Bitcoin is the democratization of finance. It's, hang on, we are controlling how this thing is done. It's not one person who is unelected. And which frustrates me is they will not be affected by the decisions that they make. The bottom 80, 90% of the population will be, but they won't be. But whereas Bitcoin, and for me, what was really crucial, took me a long time to understand, was consensus in Bitcoin. And then I finally go, that is amazing. This is truly democracy at work.
0: Yeah, I, what you're describing there is a moral hazard. And this is uh, an important concept that if you don't know it, you you really need to know. It's that when you're in control of something um, and you can benefit yourself at the expense of other people, that's a moral hazard. And um, and almost anything where somebody is an authority um tends to have a moral hazard component of it. And when you have authority over money, that's that's a giant moral hazard and you, you do get stuff like nepotism and so on. Um, and it, it disrupts market forces in some seriously bad ways. So uh, just taking COVID, uh, this lockdown situation, for example. Um, in the US, we have something called the Payment Protection Program, PPP. And these are loans given to businesses so that they can continue to pay the workers. And this was Congress's way of saying, okay, we've shut you down. This is how we're gonna make up for it. We're gonna give you these loans, which can be forgiven if you meet these conditions. Now, what does that do to an economy? Well, normally what a business is trying to do is to satisfy their customers, right? Um, As a Christian, the way I think of it, uh, think of entrepreneurship and businesses is, you're loving your neighbor, right? Like you're you're providing a good or service to other people at a fair cost, so that and they they pay you, and you're you're contributing something because they're buying it. In in some way, you're making it more convenient for them, uh, better, uh, more uh, interesting to them, or more economical for them, or something uh, than other things in the market. And as a result, they're they're getting some benefit that they wouldn't otherwise have. Now that is a really good market transaction, right? That, that, that's, a, that's a way in which both people benefit because I'm, I'm benefiting uh, as, a, as a provider because I'm getting paid and they're benefiting because they're getting a good or service that they, they value. So, I mean, that's how the market is supposed to bo- work. But when you add these PPP loans that could be forgiven, what changes? Well, first of all, um, those businesses now no longer care as much about their customers. It's not like they completely not care about the customers anymore, but who's paying them? Well, the government's paying them. <laughs> the government is giving them money. So what? Where, where does their focus go? Well, their focus goes on making sure that they fulfill the terms of this quote-unquote loan or even a grant. Uh, and they want to make sure absolutely that because their business would otherwise not be uh, solvent they make sure that they fill everything to the letter. And that is way more important than the customer that they are supposed to serve. So it changes the market dynamics. And I've seen this in local businesses, right? Where um, where they have uh, a lot of customers and so on, where they're like, okay, well, you know, I, I have to make this PPP money last. So I'm only going to um, you know, hire a few workers instead of uh, the number of workers that would make sense for the demand that I have. And so I get turned away, right? Like it's, uh, you know, uh, we, we we don't have any appointments until, you know, uh, three months from now, something like that, because, well, if we hired more people, then, then you know, like this PPP money wouldn't last and we want to make sure that th- this happens and so on. So, instead of fulfilling the customer or, or serving the customer, they're serving government, right? And that, that's a terrible thing because it, it disrupts the market forces. It teaches these businesses that customer satisfaction isn't their priority, it's government compliance that's their priority. And a lot of businesses have gone through this all throughout uh, the history of fiat money, right? Like a a lot of these businesses that are quote unquote zombie companies, they get enormous subsidies from government. And guess what? They don't really care that much about their customers either. They care way more about fulfilling the terms of the government bailout. So, So they spend way more money on lobbying. They spend way more money on campaign contributions. They spend way more money on that stuff than in research and development. Customer satisfaction surveys, creating new and better products that can beat their competition, so they can satisfy the customer the most. Um, and that that's a that's a terrible thing because it, it's it's intru- it's brought the moral hazard down. Uh, your your ability uh, your survival as a business should be based on how well you uh, you provide value to other people to civilization in general. Instead, it's contingent on how well you fulfill government mandates and that's that's not a good place to be in because that that leads to the destruction of civilization because if you're not fulfilling value to people then you end up becoming a drain on the system which a lot of these um, uh, zombie companies unfortunately have become and you 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 get kind of what what happened to rome which was they had so much bread and circuses and so much uh, you know, currency debasement and things like that, that eventually they they couldn't keep up an army because, you know, soldiers are not going to work for a currency that's continuing to debase. Um, they had very lavish parties and things like that where, uh, you know, people didn't care really about virtue. And, you know, over over generations, you got, they got, you know, softer and softer to the point where they collapsed and, uh, and you know, their uh, other... Um, enemies basically took over. So that's the situation we're in with fiat currency. And uh, and that that's the direction that we've gone to.
2: It's gotten pretty extreme, as, as you say, and I think because I've been following the markets for over 10 years now. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people talking about, okay, we are a global consumer based economy. The global consumer base has been shut down for one year. Now, even before the outbreak of COVID, you had all these people saying that um, indices, especially US indices, are way overvalued. By every single metric imaginable, they're so overvalued. What they weren't taking into account is that there's just cheap money. So it's kind of like saying, yeah, you've got a temperature of you know, um, 40 degrees Celsius, but don't worry, this thermometer goes up to 1,000. Because we've actually <laughs> changed... How much money is in the system it just we keep popping more money in um and as soon when people start understanding stock buybacks how the swiss national bank is printing money converting it into us dollars and buying shares in apple i mean that is nepotism and cronyism in it's in its worst kind um so this system that we are in yeah it's and it's amazing that today you think of what we are going through and stocks are at all-time highs and I just saw a tweet by Joe Biden saying $600 a week is not enough. we need going to bump that up to 2000. I think I'm remembering that correctly, but yeah, you're basically just handing people money. And one of the good responses, if you're just giving me money, why am I paying taxes? So, In, <laughs> in essence, we've governments have lost respect for money. If something is available in abundance, how do you value it? Well, you don't. And yeah, this is, an an amazing turning point that we are in these days, um, which is why I think your book is so critical because um, Bitcoin is not just a peer-to-peer cash system. It is not just a store of value, but it's an idea whose time has come. Um, Sorry, Gordon, I stepped on something you were gonna say.
1: Oh, it's okay. Uh, I, I enjoy the conversation, but I was actually trying to take it back to perhaps a more personal note. And Jimmy, you talked about compliance and how local businesses are more inclined to comply with the laws and regulations rather than looking after customers. And sort of the same with Christians, I sort of fear nowadays. It's a, you know, in the past, you know, we were sort of willing to die for, for our belief. But you see sort of now in that, People aren't even willing to perhaps even go to church mm-hmm. or uh, do something, some sort of civil disobedience. And I think we've, we've lost that. And there may be Christians listening to this saying, well, you know, Bitcoin is internet funny money and whatnot. And I'd, I'd ask them to listen to your podcast and read the book and listen to our podcast. But they may still feel that. But every time they go to the bank, every time they take out a loan, every time they create debt, they're actually contributing mm-hmm. to the system if you take it to the nth degree. Mm-hmm. So whether you believe in Bitcoin or not, uh, by opting out of the system, um, you're actually um, lessening the control and the grip on, on government, as, as you guys were talking about. Um, the government's printing money out of thin air. So you've got, a, you've got a money, whether you believe it or not, with a hard cap of 21 million coins. You've got no central bank. No one can print it to infin- infinity. And it's not just an economic, we, we see the social effects of, of what's happening, you know, the massive unemployment and um, all the knock-on effects. I mean, I, I get really quite upset and quite angry when people think that lockdowns are good and all that kind of stuff and saving lives. And it's like, well, <laughs> look at all the anxiety and, so, and suicide. And so anyway, getting off into a tangent, but why should someone like a Christian, why should they be interested in? In buying Bitcoin
0: yeah uh, uh, for a lot of the reasons that you said uh, and one of the arguments that we make in the book is exactly what you said which is that all uh, you know money printing doesn't just happen at the central bank level right <laughs> like where, where they issue debt so the way it works is um, um, let me let me just give you a little bit of a history lesson for your uh, listeners so um, right now uh, Governments can deficit spend. And this wasn't really true in the past, right? Um, so if you have a budget of $4 trillion and you have tax revenues of $3 trillion, where do you get that extra trillion dollars? Um, in the past, what you used to have to do was to get people that had a trillion dollars to loan you the money. And um, unfortunately, that would cost a lot of money, right? The like if if I had a trillion dollars, it, uh and that's that's the wealth I have, I would charge you a lot of interest because I would be without the trillion dollars to go buy buy things and and so on. I think um, you know, there was an English king that tried to borrow and he had something like a 216% annual rate of interest because he wanted to fund the war. And they they were like, well, you know, these things don't generally work out. So they they charge an enormous amount of interest so that um, you know, within six months, they would at least make the money back in uh in, in the in interest before before any and then anything afterwards would be gravy or whatever. Now, the way the current system works is that extra trillion dollars um they do sell it on the open market. They're called uh bonds. Uh, so in, in the US, these are uh, treasuries. So they they usually have a yield of something like 1% or 2%, something like that. And they they sell it out on the market. And for various reasons, a lot of other central banks buy them or whatever. Um, and they might sell, I don't know, $200 billion worth. Well, where's the other $800 billion? Um, This is where the central bank steps in and says, we are the lender of last resort. So they go and buy the eight hundred. Billion dollars worth of Federal Reserve notes in exchange for money that they just print, right like this is how money comes into existence it's through debt right it's uh, so technically, the federal government owes the Federal Reserve $800 billion now for that particular year. now, when that, when that comes due, what they do is they just roll it over uh, to another 30-year treasury or some, something like that. And that, uh, and they can kind of keep this going as long as they keep expanding the money supply. And this is something that's happened continuously since 1971. Uh, current uh, uh, federal deficit, I think, is around $27 trillion in the US, um, which is kind of crazy because that's greater than the entire M2 money supply, which is around $19.5 trillion. So- the the money continues to expand. So that that's at the federal level, but that's not the only level at which money expands, because you also have commercial banks. You have uh, uh, who who lend to businesses. So a business wants some money, so they'll issue a bond or something. These are called corporate bonds, and they might be at three or four um, percent. And uh, and you know they they issue them. Uh, the bank can get loans at one or two percent from the Federal Reserve. So Three or four percent, one or two percent. They borrow one or two percent. They lend out at three or four percent. They they make the make make the difference. And because of the reserve requirement, they borrow at one or two percent, uh, some amount of money. They can lend out ten times that much. Although now the reserve requirement is completely done, so they they can lend as much as they as they want at three or four percent. So what they end up getting is essentially uh, they they're printing new money through new debt right it the the money that they're uh using to buy these bonds also comes out of nothing uh it may come out of some people's savings but they're not usually happy with three, even 3 or 4% they they want uh they want 7 8% so they're they're um you know they create it out of thin air and they lend to these businesses now there there's more even happens at the retail level if you go to the bank and you want a mortgage, well, what happens? Uh, do, you you want to, um, uh, at least in the US right now, a 30-year mortgage is about 3%. So um, say you're buying a house for $300,000. Um, you have a down payment of $60,000. So $240,000, you're getting a loan from the bank. Let's just call it even quarter million dollars. Um, you're getting that loan for a quarter million dollars, 30-year term, 3%. Um, Is there anyone on the other end that wants to lend out $300,000 at 3% over a term of 30 years? No. There are very few people that would take that because 3% is way too low. 30 years is way too long. And they have no idea what your credit risk is. So instead, they print that money. They create that money out of thin air. The bank creates that money for your benefit. And because of the way that mortgage insurance works the federal government guarantees that loan using Fannie and Freddie so every like for the bank it's risk free to loan it out as long as you fulfill these requirements or comply to the standards that the federal government sets so even at the retail level we are creating money that that's money that came out of nothing and this is happening all over the economy and now of course when you pay it back you know that that money contracts or whatever but All of that is happening all the time, right? And we're complicit in this. We are creating money out of nothing. We are expanding the money supply. And what happens when you expand the money supply is that you're diluting the savings of everybody else. So whoever has the dollar um, now has a little bit less. In the the last year, the M2 money supply in the United States went from 15.5 trillion to about 19.5 trillion. That's about a 30% increase over the past year. From a monetary expansion standpoint, your your do, if you had, you know, a dollar that was 1 over 15.5 trillion of the entire US dollar money supply. Now it's 1 over 19.5 trillion. It's been diluted by 30%. And this happens with every single loan and we are all complicit in it. And in effect what you are doing when you take out a loan is you are stealing from other people. And that's what we make clear in the book is that this is just theft in a convoluted way, and and you can't just say, oh, you know what, that that's okay because everyone else does it. Because that is not, that's still not right. It, wh- whatever is wrong is still wrong, and uh, you know they make it very difficult for you to figure out that you are actually stealing. And I, and this is something I struggle with honestly because I have a mortgage, right? I that I took out, but I've come to the conclusion. I've expanded the money supply. I've stolen a little bit from every holder of the dollar out there. And I mean, it's not just people in the US. Most, A a lot of dollar holders are in third world countries, in the central banks of those countries. I'm not just stealing from people here. I'm stealing from people all over the world. Now, it's not very much. It's a fractions of a penny or whatever. But I'm still stealing. doesn't make it... Right. That I, because I'm stealing a tiny amount from other people and, you know, as a government, we're stealing way more, uh, you know, even companies are doing that. Other, other countries are doing so and so on. Um, so from a moral standpoint, you can't just ignore this and say, oh, you know what? Uh, it's, it's fine. Cause everyone, this is the water that we're swimming in and so on. So that for me is, is why we really need to think hard about this because you can't just excuse it because other people are doing it or because it happens to be the system that we're in.
1: If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe like and share so we can find others like yourself. Real Bitcoin is rent Jimmy. They I don't have a mortgage. Um <laughs> But I don't don't think most people, well, I know most people don't understand that, that though, Jimmy. you go to a bank, you get a mortgage, they think it comes out of the bank vault. There's (laughs) cash sitting in the basement somewhere and money's been moved around. I don't think people understand that comes out of thin air.
0: Yeah. And that's something that's out of the uh, savings accounts. This is exactly what Henry Ford said is, uh, you know, if the people of the country knew how money worked, there would be riots tomorrow (laughs) because they would realize, okay, our money is being stolen from us every single day by not just government, but by bankers, by big companies, like all the people that, you know, you you sort of intuitively know, okay, like something's unfair here. Well, yeah, it's because they're stealing from you and you don't realize in what ways they're stealing from you. These giant corporations get like these enormous loans Out of thin air, right? Like, uh, and and you know, the banks are eager to lend to them because there's no opportunity cost. There's no money that they're taking from the vault and giving to them. It's just they create the money, so doesn't make it it doesn't matter if they make one loan or a hundred loans. It's it like there's no opportunity cost. You don't have to choose among like five different companies that uh, that want a loan. If all five meet a certain criteria, they lend to all of them. There's no pool of money that they can they can lend out their reserve requirements completely gone at this point. And to be truthful, it was gone a long time ago because they they would just back up the reserves through the Fed and and so on. So it's been like that for a long time. You know, everyone's up to their eyeballs in debt because they can be. And, let, and that's not the only sort of moral issue either. I think about what that is. It is bringing forward consumption. It is taking, uh, you know, it, it's basically saying, I, I want this now, and I can have it right now by paying for it now, and then I can be enslaved for 30 years, or however long the term of the loan is. Whereas the biblical way, the, the more uh, character building way of doing things, and ask any parent, this is what you want your kid to do, is to save and like work for it. And then finally, when you get to the goal, and now you can have the satisfaction of having worked for it, now you have it, you've earned it. Instead, it is bringing, bringing it, it, that is the opposite. It's bringing forward consumption and then paying it off and, and enslaving yourself for a long time. This is why it says in the Bible debtor is servant to the lender. You, you're literally having to service this debt. It, it, um and we're all if you if you have that you are in a, in many ways a servant to the people that own your debt. They want to own you <laughs> and 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 you're you're being owned as a result of that and the unfortunate reality is the vast majority of people in civilization, whether they know it or not, you are a servant of the uh, of the bank or the banks or government or whoever because they own your debt. And, and it's an unfortunate situation. And I mean, to a large degree, this, this is why like Christians uh, aren't, aren't very courageous, right? Like you, you pointed this out earlier, Ferris, and I, I was thinking of the cartoon that I saw. Uh, 65 AD, Emperor Nero tells Christians, I will feed you to the lions and you will die a horrible death. And Christians say, I will do this for the glory of my God. 2020, Gavin Newsom says, you cannot go to church or anything. And uh, Christian says, thank you for keeping me safe, right? Like th- that, that, that to me, it like speaks everything about the lack of character and lack of courage that fiat money has brought. It, it, it's that you no longer are thinking about honoring God. You, you're thinking about honoring the people that gave you that debt. your you're real masters in other words.
1: Or even worse, you're just thinking of the five thousand dollar fine you're going to get if you don't wear a mask.
0: <laughs> that too. I mean, and it, it's it's funny how compliance has uh, has become like this thing that uh, that churches even enforce now. I, I was joking with uh, with some people that you know, like every church says uh, all are welcome here, right? Like uh, like every, you go to any church that that is almost one of the first things that everyone every church will say is all are welcome here. I don't, you know, whatever you've been through, whatever you've done, you know, we will accept you here. And then I was thinking, unless you refuse to me wear a mask, in which case, you know, we're going to kick you out or something like that. There, that. That That's how I feel like a lot of churches are operating. It's, okay, we're, we're going to enforce this government mandate because they are beholden to government too. They get their tax breaks and Real estate, uh, you know, uh, whatever. Like they, they, they get a lot of government benefits. That if we, if they run afoul of the law, they know that they have to suffer consequences. Um, plus, they have debts that they have to pay, mortgages on their new buildings and things like that. All of that ends up being actually very bad for churches because it takes out its soul. It's 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 not about serving God anymore. It, it becomes. So, And this is a criticism that we wrote in the book is it, it becomes kind of like a religious country club. And instead of becoming something that is about serving God, and that, that to me is probably the saddest commentary on the church today.
2: I actually spoke at a theological college recently, Jimmy. It's exactly what I said. Christ did not build a building. He went out. <laughs> Yeah, He left and yeah. he went and met with people. Whereas modern day churches, yeah, we build a building with a big door that we lock and we say, <laughs> yeah, feel free to come in.
0: <laughs> yeah. And you get, you get into debt for the next 30 years where, um, you know, like you end up having to rent out the church to preschools or something like that. And, uh, you know, selling some of the land maybe to pay off debts, and uh, it's it's about getting con- uh, you know, increasing tithing congregants at all costs and things like that. It's it it becomes sort of like uh you you become a servant to the lender, right? Like you you become a landlord or a real estate broker instead of a minister, and it's 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 a sad reality, of of the of the monetary system that it can corrupt churches like that, and this is why so many churches are so intent. On enforcing, um, you know, local mandates on masks and so on, because they know if they don't serve the government, that they can get shut down. And they're so afraid of being shut down by government um, that that you know that that they comply. And the the sad fact is, like, that's not who you're supposed to serve, right? <laughs> like, I, I mean, there are underground churches in North Korea, Myanmar, and, and various places. You know they—they, they, uh, those are courageous. They—they're actually like exhibiting uh, a desire to really serve God, and and they have a faith that you know uh, that uh, that that's so rare in the West today. And um and that's the sad reality of what's happening is that so many people think that they are. Doing the right thing by like uh, you, know, you know obeying government. No, actually, you should make that determination on your own. Uh, but when every single congregation seems to have come to the same conclusion independently, you you start suspending. Maybe not. Maybe maybe you're you're serving somebody else, and you you don't want to admit it. Um, that's that that seems to be the case right now.
2: So, Jimmy, how do you tithe Bitcoin? And maybe to all our heathen <laughs> listeners, explain what tithing is.
0: Yeah, tithing is, uh, it, it is the command to give, right? Like, um, And this is something that was in the Old Testament, um, you know, giving a tenth of uh, what you've reaped and giving it to God because he's the one that made it possible for you. And that he, he commands that it's his already and it is your offering and so on. Um there there's some there there's some dispute to whether or not it was exactly ten percent and uh and, and so on uh but you know that it, it's it's a discipline uh as uh for a christian as a way to uh remember that it is all God's and that you are just a caretaker and that you know by giving the first ten percent it's a it's a way uh to Acknowledge that it's not yours per se, but that it's God's, and that you're um, you're stewarding over it, and so on. Um, tithing Bitcoin is a little tricky because if it's savings, then it's a little different than if it's earnings. Uh, so if you're getting paid in Bitcoin, then I guess you can tithe in Bitcoin. Um, but generally, it's uh, it's based off of your income and so on. Um, you know, I, 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 it's, it's kind of a tricky topic because a lot of churches emphasize tithing in large part because they have a lot of debt and <laughs> they know that if they don't get enough tithes, then uh, they enter what I call in the book a uh, downward uh, downward spiral, right? Like if you don't have enough congregants to service the debt, then what you end up having to do is laying off staff or whatever other costs that you might have. And then that shrinks the congregation further. And I've seen this at at a lot of churches where you enter this downward spiral and then next thing you know, you have to bring in another congregation to rent your building, right? To perform services there or for weddings or whatever uh, as a way so that you can service this debt because that debt is like everything. so, you know, there there's an emphasis on tithing that a lot of churches end up uh, having that you know a lot of congregants rightfully detect as kind of like okay this is a little bit self-serving, right? Like they, uh, you know and a lot of non-Christians especially when they go to church and hear that they're like well, what what is this? Is this all about money? And yeah, it kind of is. Um, they don't want to admit that it is and they they might even believe that it's not. And uh, and say no, it's actually good for you or whatever. Uh, but given the debts that they have, that's almost something that they have to believe. So it's, it, um for me, I I have some conflict over it because I, I know that there are especially at the beginning of this coronavirus stuff, a lot of Congress. The the church is new. Okay, if they're we're not they're not coming into the building, we're gonna have trouble collecting money, and. And, you know, um, nearly every sermon I heard was, you know, at the end of it, you know, we want to make sure that you're giving um, during this difficult time and blah, blah, blah. And it it was like, okay, this seems interesting. Um, And I like that that's kind of the situation or the squeeze that you put yourself in when you're in a lot of debt is that you kind of have to put those things in front of maybe a word that the congregation actually needs to hear, which is that Jesus is the hope, and you know um, you might be unemployed, but you know it's uh, you know your, your worth is more than that, and and so on. And instead of those messages, it's you need to tithe, right? Like which see, ends up becoming very self serving. So I, I have mixed feelings about that, um, and I, I suspect that the uh, c- cynicism with which many non Christians uh, approach the church with respect to tithing Um, is warranted in part because of, um, you know, the money that, you know, the God of money that a lot of churches end up serving as as a result of getting into debt and so on.
1: I I understand the reality of churching, you know, churches Mm. have maintenance costs and that sort of stuff, but uh, I can understand why people are so cynical, you know, churches buy these massive auditoriums and all this studied out equipment and running mm. tracks and theaters and all that kind of stuff. And it's like basketball yeah, well, courts,
0: yeah. Yeah, basketball
1: <laughs> we, we've got ten million dollars worth of property. Uh we need to have every eighth sermon about tithing. So that's probably why. So uh I mean I was brought up in in church and, and let's get down to it that um you know money was evil. Uh mm. greed is bad. Uh as as Christians, uh we should love God. But mm. um uh, the love of money is is the root of all evil. So, is is that some of the pushback, perhaps, as to why Christians maybe aren't getting into Bitcoin?
0: Yeah. Uh, so here here's um, here's where uh, you know I describe the Christian view of money as either too high or too low, <laughs> and what I mean by that is. Uh, on, on one extreme, there's a tendency to dismiss money altogether, right? This is the idea that oh, money is beneath me, right? Like, you know, I, I don't like the, that's too worldly, and you know, it's yucky, and they feel dirty every time they touch money. And I don't blame them, right? Yeah, money is very dirty, and there's a lot of ugly things, sort of like uh, wrapped up in uh, the current monetary system, um, or it's too high, right? There, This is the sort of like greed that you're talking about where, you know, people will do almost anything for money where to the point where if they can get paid a hundred dollars more per, per week, they'll, they'll go switch jobs and do whatever because, uh, because that's such a priority for them. And, uh, and in a way it, it makes their decisions. Like One of, one of the things that I, I've, uh, I've talked to a lot of couples at church, young couples at church where, you know, just like talking about children or something like that. It's like, Hey, uh, you know, are you thinking about having a kid? They're like, yeah, but you know, we're too early in our careers and we can't afford it. So, and, and, you know, I, I'll be like, okay, so what what are you actually saying to me? Right. You're saying that if you had enough money, that would be enough to take care of the kid so what are you trusting in then you're trusting that the money would take care of the kid you're not trusting that God would take care of the kid or that you would take care of the kid or that uh, you know your family would be able to uh, provide enough love for the kid you are trusting that the money would take care of the kid who's your God right um and the the sad reality is it's both too high and too low uh, in in like sort of like um Bible studies or prayer requests or whatever, we tend to push that money and make it as if it's too low, but in actual reality, how we behave, what we do and how we act, it's way too high. It's all about, you know, making more money and like, uh, you know, one, one of the things, one of the criticisms that we put in the book is, you know, think about the phrase, it's just business. Right. Like people say that to justify almost any manner of sin in any business transaction. It's, oh, it's just business. You know, like, uh, yeah, it's, it's fine that I screwed this person over or did unkind and uncharitable things because it's just business. It's fine. It's like, well, what? you have a different set of uh, moral rules for when you're dealing with money. Who's your God? <laughs> right. Like, so, so for me, um, like thinking about money uh, as too high or too low is unhealthy. Money needs to be in the right place. And it's somewhere in between. And I I, I got to admit, it's it's kind of hard. Because in a sense, what fiat money does is it makes you love it. Uh, I, we call this in the book, um, the monetary Stockholm syndrome, right? Where the very thing that enslaves you makes you love it in, in some weird way. Uh, and it's because it's, uh, you know, Fiat money has this tendency to make everything a zero-sum game. In order to gain, you have to screw somebody else over. Um, whereas, with uh, you know, when you have abundant money, when you can print any money, it's it's a zero-sum game. When you have scarce money, then it's a positive-sum game. You you're providing value to other people and growing civilization and so on. So when it's a zero, screwing other people over, or you you uh, you feel like you have to do that in order to get ahead and so on. So ultimately, all that is to say that the right place for money is putting it in its proper place. It's not thinking too high of it or too low of it. It's recognizing for what what it is. It's a great tool in order to figure out where you are adding most value to a civilization, to your fellow man, to other people, so that you can love them better, right? (laughs) <laughs> and that, that's part of, uh, that's the second greatest commandment that Christ told us, love your God and love others. Uh, to me, loving others isn't just, you know, giving them hugs or whatever. It is providing a good or service to civilization that is uniquely s- situated towards your talents and your abilities and your experiences and your location and so on in a way that provides value to others. And you're you're helping build them up and they're helping build you up. That's what a community is supposed to be. Fiat money subverts all of that. And the unfortunate reality is it makes you think of money in a too high way or a too low way. The proper role of money puts you in a position where you can love others in an effective way. And that, that's where I think it should be.
1: And how do, how, how do you do that, Jimmy, between the high and the low? I mean, as, as Christian Bitcoiners, sometimes I struggle with that. I mean, you know, we uh, for me, I'm more interested in the technology, but let's be honest, you know, when the price goes up, you get a bit excited and you get a bit <laughs> obsessed and, you know, that's, that's kind of natural. But the same in the technology as well. I'm, I'm into programming as well, which, by the way, I was going to take your course, but I won't dox myself <laughs> as to why I didn't. Um, yeah, you do get obsessed, and you get obsessed with Bitcoin. And Bitcoin's going to save the world, and Bitcoin's going to cure cancer, which obviously it's not. How do you sort of, how do you balance that? How do, you, how do you sort of center yourself?
0: Yeah. Uh, so uh, pretty much anything put in the wrong place, uh, as a Christian, it, it can become a god, right? Uh, and this is the sin of idolatry: is um, putting things in the wrong place. And the unfortunate reality is, is that with the current fiat monetary system you almost have to serve fiat money in order to, uh, in order to almost survive, right? Like, uh, you, uh, otherwise you can't get a job. You can't, you, you can't make money. And, um, you, you have to play by the rules of fiat in order to make fiat money. Um, thankfully, Bitcoin is starting to change that. But, you know, most of civilization is still running on fiat money. So it has fiat rules and it has uh, fiat compliance and fiat um, mentality and values and uh, morality and all, all of that. So getting out of that, I think, is is a challenge. And uh, I, I'm not going to lie. I struggle with it a lot, too. Um, as far as specifically getting obsessed with Bitcoin and um and sort of uh, justifying, uh, you know, uh, like ignoring everything else at, at its behest, um, that's something that we should always watch out for. Um, it's possible that you may be obsessed. I, I mean, you don't need me to tell you that there are a lot of pastors that are obsessed with growing their congregation or church and neglect their family, right? Like that, that's like a typical um, Christian thing is if you're a pastor's kid, you end up messed up because the pastor didn't end up raising you very well because they, they were so concentrating on uh, uh on their congregation or whatever uh so it's possible to take any good thing and obsess over it too much and this is uh where personal discipline and uh your relationship with god comes in is you you have to have a solid foundation for your beliefs um and for having uh you know, the discipline of, uh, of being in a relationship with God to the point where you can put things in the right place, in the proper place, instead of putting it too high or too low. Um, generally it's a, it's a little easier to, uh, put it too high. Like that's our natural tendency, especially if you, uh, are the type of person that got into Bitcoin in the first place. Uh, but, you know, and uh, sort of, uh, you know, P- pushing b- money down a little bit, uh, I think, comes with uh, you know experience in Bitcoin. I- I've noticed, for example, like um, you know, I used to be really obsessed with bargains, right? Like, and and finding ways to save money. And uh, my my wife calls me a cheapskate and all that stuff. And I-, I used to find great bargains and things like that. I I don't do that as much anymore. And part of it is in in knowing that okay, if I just wait, then Bitcoin's going to be greater. <laughs> Uh, in price so if i don't buy this now it's okay right like i I'll, I'll ultimately end up saving money at the end so i don't i don't have to worry about it so much and it, it sort of relieves me mentally of this burden of having to constantly uh save money or earn more money or keep up with inflation or finding good investments and so on uh and it leaves more room for other things so um by getting into bitcoin it 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 does sort of take some of that relief off. Now, it's okay to get excited, I think, to that the price is going up and that there's more adoption and so on. Um, it gets bad if that's all you're thinking about. <laughs> uh, and, uh, you know, and that that's something that we put in the book too, is that there are things that Bitcoin doesn't solve. And a lot of that is human sin, right? Like it's uh, human greed, um, you know, uh, your your pride or wrath or envy or lust or gluttony or uh, sloth are not going to get cured just because you got into Bitcoin. It might help. But, you know, those things require a change of the human heart. And that's not something that Bitcoin could touch. So um, I I would encourage anyone that is curious to, you know, go go read what the Bible says, because that that that's that's a large part of it. Uh, but you know, there's a reason why, uh, you know, a large portion of the scriptures is about money, uh, because it does capture people's hearts and, uh, and learning about that and figuring out in which way you are obsessed and how you can be free of that. Um, I, I think would be a great exercise and, uh, and a nice balance to the obsession that you might already have.
2: Thank you, Gene. That's really, really good way of pointing it. Um, one last question from me. Um, so, with the all the authors, is there going to be a new Bitcoin Jesus? Because that's worked out pretty well for people with that label. <laughs> uh,
0: I, I don't think so. I mean, um, that that was, uh, I think, almost like a self-selected um, label. Uh, and as far as I know, he is not at all religious. Uh, the last man to hold that title, and I think. Uh, he's been working against Bitcoin for longer than he was a proponent of bitcoin um so i i, I wouldn't I wouldn't put much on that label um I, I would say that there is some similarity in that there's a lot of uh sort of explaining that needs to be done whenever you bring up Bitcoin kind of like christianity as well uh there's a lot of misconceptions about christianity that I found um what's curious to me is that there are, A ton of Bitcoiners that are asking the deeper questions. And I I, I attribute this to sort of freeing up some mind space and uh, getting people to ask questions that they never would have asked because, you know, uh, Bitcoin makes you ask questions about money that you never thought to ask. It's like, what what actually is it? And how does it work? And all this other stuff. And it's like, have I been lied to? And then, you know, you, you start asking that stuff about lots of other things. And you know uh, that might lead you down the road of carnivory, or about like the spiritual reality of uh, 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 uh you know, of the metaphysical world around you, and so on. So, um, yeah, this is uh, this is something that I feel called to talk about and explain, and uh, and you know, it 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 would be a good thing uh, for more people to ask those questions and to think about them deeply and to, um, you know, commentate on what's going on in the world from that perspective
2: yeah that's a really interesting point something i forgot to mention when you were speaking earlier is you just made me think of the last scene in the social dilemma on netflix and this is what we're seeing playing out now it's not just politics it's not just economics but people are thinking something is wrong mm-hmm. and this is why we're seeing you know riots around the world and uh, inequality of wealth is getting worse and there is you know a lot of factors converging right now. We are at the beginning of a new hundred-year cycle, and I know you mentioned earlier, like we're we're at a, a very low point for the church. But I do see this as a time of spiritual awakening for a lot of people. Um, and I'm using that term specifically, spiritual, not religious awakening. Um, mm-hmm. But so, Jimmy, it's been a real privilege for me just to hear you bring in this side of Bitcoin because to me, yeah, Bitcoin is not just finance; it's so much more. In, I'm very grateful for the book and um, yeah for you sharing you know your journey with us.
0: Well, thank you so much. Uh, I, I, I this is for me like sort of like a convergence of uh, two parts of my life that I didn't think would cross, but they <laughs> did. Uh, you know, Bitcoin and God, and uh, I'm I'm very thankful that I I got to make write this book with uh, with seven wonderful co-authors and that. We, we churned this out at, uh, during COVID, <laughs> during like sort of a very dark time for people. Um, the book is Thank God for Bitcoin. You can find it on Amazon um, in all sorts of countries. Uh, I think it's available in all those places. Um, and it is uh, available on Kindle. Uh, we're working on the audiobook. book. And uh, yeah, I, I, I really hope that this uh, uh, book uh, can find its way towards I- I- in churches and get them to ask some real uncomfortable questions about money that a lot of churches just don't ask.
1: Yeah, thanks, Jimmy. I could uh, I could ask many questions, especially about Bitcoin development, but perhaps mm-hmm. for another time. <laughs> um, and and even you know, as a Christian, you 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 tend to when I first got into Bitcoin, I'd. I came from a tech background, and, but I then went into the economics and Austrian economics and what is money. And mm. I also uh, looked at time preference, and you mentioned that plenty of times, um, mm. having, having a high and a low time preference. And you, you do reevaluate things. So I think that mm. a lot of people, as Farris said, they're actually looking at this economic crisis that's happening, looking at COVID, and they're like, well, what is important in life? You know, what what is the meaning of life, and and those sort of deep questions. So, um, so I guess uh, final thoughts or final question. Anyone listening to this, atheists, Christian, whoever doesn't matter, um, and they're interested in Bitcoin. What should they do? Should they go out, uh, sign up to Coinbase and buy mortgage their house and buy hundred thousand dollars worth, or what? What should they do?
0: <laughs> uh, great question. Um, I, I think first. Go learn what it is, right? Like, uh, and uh, and like you guys said, the the thing that most people don't know is how the current system works and what it is, and um, you know, uh, you know, a lot of people come for the number go up, but then stay for sort of like the life change and becoming a better person and so on. Um, and I think there's a lot of truth to that. Um, you know what? What might get you in the door to Bitcoin is uh, you know sort of selfishness and greed or whatever, what what have you. Uh, but you know, as uh, you know, I, I heard a quote by uh, by I think it was a Catholic priest or something like that, and he he said, you know, you might be here for all sorts of reasons, right? Like you might be here because your spouse dragged you here. You might be here because. Uh, you're interested in a member of the opposite sex here. You might be here for whatever, uh, but God has brought you to me for a reason, and uh, and I am going to make sure that you get what uh, what you need to hear from God. Um, and in in the same way, I, I you know like Bitcoin is similar, right? You might be here because you're greedy. You might be here because uh, you know you you just want to screw over base. You might be here because you're confused about what the heck is going on in the financial system. Um, but our job, as sort of like the Bitcoin evangelists, if you will, is to tell you what is wrong with the system, and why Bitcoin fixes things, and uh, and that that to me is is what will get you to stay, and it, it, it's going to get you to uh, not stray towards the greedy and. Uh, nefarious paths of uh, uh, of all coining and no coining and blockchain, not Bitcoin, and all this other stuff that I, I I think is really a distraction, and get you to see what see Bitcoin for what it is, which is which, uh, in our book we call the redemption of money. Uh, it, it's bringing money back to its original intended purpose. Um, so I, I would say to everyone that that is thinking about Bitcoin. Um, to really think about what money is, and ask yourself, what is money? <laughs> and if you're an atheist, also ask, okay, what, why is money valued? And you know, what does that have to do with the spiritual realm and so on? Uh, because at least according to the Bible, it has a lot of overlap. So yeah, go from there.
1: Thanks, Jimmy. God bless. Thank you for writing. Uh, the book, which uh, I have skimmed over, I bought it today, but I will I will read it, and perhaps we'll have you back on again. So thanks again, Jimmy. Uh, thank you,
0: and uh, yeah, maybe maybe you can have one of my uh, co-authors on as well.
1: Fantastic. Okay, well that's it from me, Faris. Any final words? No, thank you very much, Jimmy, and uh, yeah, we will
2: link up for um, on the show notes where everyone can purchase your book. Awesome. Yeah. I highly recommend it.
1: <laughs> Great. Thank you. Thank you. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe, like, and share so we can find others like yourself. Thanks for watching or listening. Please visit coincompass.com free to register to our socials and discover other free content. Subscribing, liking, and following helps this content remain ad-free. Until next time.